please take your Bible now at this time and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. We are in Matthew chapter 17 this morning, verses 14 through 23. Uh, we're almost at the end of our message series now on miracles and controversies. Uh, and uh, today's passage is one of those passages that contains both a miracle and a controversy. We get one of each today, okay? Uh, the miracle involves Jesus uh, casting a demon out of a boy. The controversy has to do with Jesus' disciples and their inability to heal the boy themselves. And the question's raised, why were they not able to cast out this demon? So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So we're in Matthew 17, verses 14 through 23. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Matthew 17, beginning at verse 14. It says, When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed from that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Well, dear Lord, we so want to hear from you in your word this morning. And so, Lord, as we read these words, as we study them together, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would speak to us directly to our hearts, uh, what you would have each of us hear today from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. How much faith does it take to do a miracle? How much faith does it, do, does it take to do a miracle? You know, most people, if they hear that question, they say, well, it, it would take a lot, right? Only somebody with a, a whole lot of faith uh, could ever work a miracle. But you know, that's not what Jesus says in our passage this morning, is it? Jesus says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to the mountain, move, and it's going to move, right? And a mustard seed, that's pretty small. And so it would seem that you don't need a whole lot of faith for a miracle to take place. But then Jesus also tells his disciples the reason they couldn't work the miracle was because of their little faith. So you read that and you go, well, which is it, okay? <laughs> does little faith prevent miracles or does a small amount of faith work miracles? What is this faith that moves mountains? And that's the main question that we're going to be exploring uh, in our message this morning. There is an outline in your worship guide if you'd like to take it out at this time to follow along or jot down some notes as we go through these verses together. 
But it all begins with the father of this demon-possessed boy. So let's look first now at the father's request. The father's request in verses 14 through 16. It says, When they came to the crowd, they here is Jesus, Peter, James, and John. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. There's a number of things I want you to notice from the Father's request. First of all, notice his respectful approach. His respectful approach. When Jesus and his disciples come to the crowd, this man approaches Jesus. He kneels before him. He addresses him as Lord. He asks him for mercy. Now think about it for a moment. What if this man had not approached Jesus at all? What if he had just stayed back in the crowd? Or what if he had approached Jesus in a different manner? Uh, Perhaps arrogantly or perhaps demanding that Jesus heal his son. He may not have received the help he needed. Now think about yourself. What if you never approached Jesus? What if you decided to stay with the crowd instead? Or what if you came to Jesus in a disrespectful manner, making demands instead of seeking His mercy? You also may not receive the help that you need. The Father approaches Jesus respectfully. He asks for mercy, and He receives mercy. And This encourages us to take our needs, our desperate needs to Jesus, and to ask for His mercy and help as well. And the next, I want you to notice His suffering son. You know, the man isn't even asking help for himself. He's asking help for his boy, for his son. And the son is is experiencing these seizures. He is suffering greatly. He needs constant supervision as he often falls into the fire or into the water. We don't have a lot of details, but it sounds like the boy was suffering uh, from some kind of epileptic seizures. But then even beyond that, we discover there is also a demon involved. Now, it's important for you to know this. Not all sickness is caused by demons, okay? I don't want you to get the wrong idea here. Not all sickness is caused by demons. However, there are several examples in Scripture of demon possession manifesting itself as illness. And that's what's happening here. And the demon appears to be trying to harm the boy as as these seizures often happen when the boy is near the fire or near the water. So the man's son is suffering greatly. He brings his son to Jesus' disciples. But you know, they're unable to help him. Remember, this all took place while Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter and James and John. And so these were the remaining nine disciples. They tried to help, but they couldn't do it. They were unable to cast out the demon. They were unable to heal the boy of his seizures. So the father brings his request to Jesus. And then we find Jesus' response now in verses 17 and 18. Oh, unbelieving and perverse 
generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How, how long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed from that moment. I want you to notice that Jesus has a dual response to the man's request. First, he expresses anguish over the unbelief of the present generation. Then he demonstrates his power and authority over the demon by rebuking the demon and healing the boy. Let's look at both of those responses. First of all, his cry of anguish. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? You know, that response from Jesus, it catches us off guard at first, right? Because Jesus is so, is normal. He's just so patient with everyone, right? He's so patient. And you know, God is, is so incredibly patient with us. In fact, the Bible tells us one of the reasons Jesus hasn't returned yet is because God is patiently waiting for more people to come to repentance, for more people to come to Christ. But you know, the Bible also tells us that even though God is incredibly patient, even though Jesus is incredibly patient, that we should not take God's patience for granted. Because even though God's patience is unlimited, the time frame in which God exercises His patience is not. There will come a time when God says, enough. And in God's perfect justice, He will bring His righteous judgment upon individuals, upon nations, indeed upon the whole world, a righteous judgment that we all deserve. And you know, we catch a glimpse of that here in Jesus' cry of anguish. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? His cry of anguish as he anticipates leaving this world and returning to the Father. Jesus describes the present generation of his time as unbelieving and perverse. Now, unbelieving, that's easy. That simply means no faith, without faith, lacking faith. But the word translated perverse here, it's a word that means twisted or distorted. In our context here, it speaks of moral corruption. Because of their unbelief, this generation was unable to see clearly, they were unable to think clearly, they were immoral, they were corrupt. Immorality and unbelief often go together. Now, Jesus did not mean that there wasn't any faith in the current generation. As we've been studying the Gospel of Matthew, we've seen it. Jesus commends a number of people for their faith throughout the Gospel. So it's not that there there wasn't any faith, but rather that the generation as a whole was characterized by unbelief. So let me ask you this morning, is our generation any better? Probably not, right? I mean, praise God, there are many believers today. Praise God, we have many fine examples of faith. But we also, we also live in a generation that is mostly characterized by unbelief and how it grieves the Lord, how it causes anguish for the Lord, how we grieve the Lord by our sin 
and unbelief. You know, Jesus made a similar cry of anguish uh, later on in the Gospel of Matthew when he approached Jerusalem. We read in Matthew 23, verse 37. Jesus sees the city and he cries out, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets, you who stoned those who sent you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus longed to help the people of Jerusalem. He longed to gather them together, but they were not willing. It's not that Jesus wasn't willing. They were not willing. How about you this morning? Jesus also longs to help you. He longs to shelter you under his wings. He's willing. How about you? Are you willing? Or are you part of this unbelieving and distorted generation that turns away from Christ and his mercy? So the father makes his request, and Jesus responds first by expressing anguish over an unbelieving generation. And then secondly, he demonstrates his power and authority over the demon. The father comes to Jesus. Hey, I brought my son to your disciples. They couldn't help him. They couldn't heal him. Jesus says, bring him to me. Bring him to me. You know, we've seen Jesus cast out demons multiple times already throughout the Gospel of Matthew. This is the final example now that Matthew records for us. Jesus rebukes that demon. The demon comes out of the boy, and the boy is immediately healed. Folks, that is the power and authority of Christ. One word from Jesus, and Satan flees. Is Satan bothering you? Does he bring you the same temptations over and over? You also have been given authority in Christ. The Bible tells us this in James chapter 4, verse 7. It says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Notice it's a two-step process, right? Submit and then resist. Submit Resist. First, you submit yourself to God. You know what that means? Don't try to tackle the devil all all by yourself. Don't try to do this in your own strength. You're never going to bring him down. No, you submit yourself first to God, then you resist. Actively resist the devil and his temptations. Submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So we've looked at the Father's request. We've looked at Jesus' response. Now we come really to the crux of the whole passage, which is Jesus' discussion with his disciples about faith. What the disciples failed to do, Jesus did easily. So they come to him asking, why couldn't we do it? Why couldn't we drive the demon out? Jesus says, let's talk, okay? Let's talk about faith. In the whole discussion, it's a little confusing at first because Jesus seems to be saying two things at once. We mentioned it at the beginning of the message. First, he tells them the problem. He says, the problem is you have little faith. Little faith. But then he tells them the solution. He says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, 
You can move mountains. And that's confusing because it seems like the solution is the same as the problem, right? It's a paradox. Jesus often speaks in paradoxes. He wants us to dig deep into his words and to think about what he's saying. And the answer here has to do with coming to understand the difference, okay? The difference between what Jesus means by little faith and what Jesus means by small faith, or faith is small as a mustard seed. And there is a difference, but we have to look closer uh, and look closer at his words to figure this out. So we begin now with the disciples' lack of faith, Matthew 17, verses 19 and 20. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private, and they asked, why couldn't we drive it out? Jesus replied, because you have so little faith. And I want to just keep that slide up there for a minute. Did you notice how I put that word so in brackets? Notice how it's in brackets. Even though the translators have included that word in the verse, that word so is not really there in the original language. And I think it's better if we leave that word out. I think that word can be a little confusing. The word so implies quantity of faith, so little faith, such a small amount of faith. And Jesus is not talking about how much faith a person has here. He's going to do that in a moment when we get to small faith. But he's not talking about how much. So Jesus doesn't say, because you have so little faith, with an emphasis on the word so. He simply says this. The disciple says, why couldn't we do it? He says, because you got little faith. you got little faith. Now the disciples are still confused. Jesus gave them power to cast out demons and power to heal. That was part of their job description as apostles, right? So why couldn't they do it in this case? And Jesus tells them, because of your little faith. That's really the whole issue here. Why did the disciples fail to drive out the demon? Because they exercised little faith instead of effective faith. They exercised little faith instead of effective faith. So what's the difference? You go, what's the difference between little faith and effective faith? The difference does not have to do with the amount of your faith, but rather the object of your faith. Who or what are you trusting? Are you trusting in something little? That's little faith. Or are you trusting in something big? Little faith trusts in something little. Effective faith trusts in God. So little faith, trusting in something little, basically anything smaller than God. Because let's face it, compared to God, everything is little. So you might wonder, well, what were the disciples trusting? when they tried to drive out this demon? Well, certainly not God. If they'd been trusting God, the demon would have been driven out. So that means they were trusting something else, something little. Perhaps their own abilities, perhaps their past experiences. They were probably thinking, they probably came into this with a little bit of pride. It's like, yeah, we've done this before. We've got this, you know. We can cast out this demon. Who are they trusting? They were forgetting about that whole submit yourselves to God first before you resist the devil. The reason they were unable to cast out the demon is because they were exercising the wrong kind of faith. They were exercising little faith rather than true faith in God. And so their faith was a defective faith. Why can't we drive it out? Jesus says, because of your little faith. 
if little faith is defective faith, then what is effective faith? Effective faith means faith in God. Do you want effective faith? Then put your faith in something big. And you know what? Nothing is bigger than God. You know, the disciples may have failed to drive out the demon, but they did the right thing here by coming to Jesus. You know, when you or I, when we fail in our Christian walk, what do we need to do? Come to Jesus. Talk it out with Him. Ask Him what's wrong. What did I do wrong? Don't be afraid. He will never cast you aside. He loves you. And He's there to help you, to guide you, and to instruct you. Effective faith means faith in God. And you know what? Even a small amount of faith in God can do big things. Look at the rest of verse 20 now with me where Jesus tells the disciples, I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Well, the mustard seed, that was the smallest seed around, and so the mustard seed here represents something very small, even just a small amount of faith. The mountain here represents something big, okay? Something you could never move on your own, something you could never do on your own. What is Jesus saying? He's saying you don't need a large amount of faith to do big things. You just need true faith. You need faith in God. You don't move the mountain anyways, right? It's God who moves the mountain. Your faith makes a difference not because your faith is great, but because God is great. So don't focus on the size of your faith. Focus on the size of God. So when you read this passage, Jesus isn't telling you to go around moving actual mountains to impress friends and relatives, okay? No, he's talking about, he's saying even the smallest amount of faith in God can do big things, can do great things. You know, in the parallel account to this in the Gospel of Mark, some of the same situations are shared in different Gospels, Jesus also mentions the necessity of prayer. In the Gospel of Mark, when the disciples ask him, why they couldn't drive out the demon. He tells them this kind can only come out by prayer. And then some of our older translations have an extra verse 21 here in Matthew 17. That verse mentions both prayer and fasting. You might wonder, well, how do prayer and fasting connect to all of this? Prayer and fasting are both important so far as they increase our dependence on God. As long as they are increasing our dependence on God, that's good. But we should never view them as a means to an end disconnected from faith. How are faith and prayer related? Prayer is one of the primary ways you express your faith. Faith and prayer both demonstrate dependency on God. I like the way one writer puts it. Faith like a a grain of mustard seed is simply faith that says its prayers. Isn't that beautiful? Faith, like a grain of mustard seed, is simply faith that says says its prayers. Prayerlessness is powerlessness. 
Jesus says, even the smallest amount of faith in God, as small as a mustard seed, can do big things. Folks, there is a big difference between faith in something little and even a small amount of faith in a big God. So if true faith is effective faith, if little faith is defective faith, if little faith fails then I want to know, and I'm sure you do too, how do we do the real thing? How do we practice true faith instead of little faith? The Bible gives us three key instructions in this area. Let me share all three of them with you very briefly here. First of all, believe God's Word. That's where it all starts. That's where faith begins. Believe God's Word. Psalm 145 verse 13 says, The Lord is faithful to all His promises and loving toward all He has made. God is faithful, and His Word is true. If you want to practice true faith, faith that moves mountains, where do you begin? Believe God's Word. Secondly, trust God's character. Trust God's character. Hebrews eleven six says this, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to Him must Believe that He exists. Okay, that's faith 101, believing that God exists. But then what does He say? And also that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. Trust God's character. Trust His goodness, His loving kindness towards you, and His faithfulness to His Word. And then thirdly, submit to God's will. 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, we read this. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of Him. True faith submits to God's will. In other words, God doesn't promise you that if you have enough faith that you can do anything you want. Okay? He doesn't say, if you've got enough faith, go ahead, do anything you want, knock yourself out. Do you know how dangerous that would be? Would you trust your two-year-old with that kind of power? I think not. Would you trust your husband or wife with that kind of power? Would you even trust yourself with that kind of power? I don't want that power. We're all two-year-olds compared to God, right? God, you know what? God does not trust us with that kind of power either which is really wise of him and really good for us. Faith is not a magic gift card to spend however you choose. True faith doesn't ask for what you want. True faith asks for what God wants. True faith submits to God's will. Believes God's word. Trusts God's character. Submits God's will. And then finally, we come to Jesus' prediction of his betrayal, death, and resurrection. We see this in verses 22 and 23, back in Matthew 17. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with with grief. This is now the second time that Jesus predicts his suffering 
death and resurrection. We saw the first time back in Matthew 16, 21. But this time you'll notice he adds a new detail. This time he mentions his coming betrayal. He says that the Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men. Jesus tells the disciples about both his death and resurrection, but you know they seem to miss the part about the resurrection because Matthew says they were filled with grief. And so they seem far more focused on Jesus' death than his resurrection. They're still trying to understand all this. It's all so new to them. You know, as the, tri- as the time drew near for Jesus to go to the cross, he spoke often with his disciples. He spoke more and more with them about his coming death in resurrection. In this way, he reminded them of his true mission. He also sought to prepare them for the great trial that was ahead. Now, I love this whole passage because it teaches us such an important truth about faith. It's not how much faith you have that's so important as who you are trusting. Little faith is trusting something little. Effective faith is trusting in God. And a small amount of faith in God, that is better than any amount of faith in something else. And even the smallest amount of faith in God can do big things. Now, of course, a larger amount of faith in God is even better, right? You don't want small faith in a big God, right? No, you want big faith in a big God. So we need to do two things. First, make sure you've got the right kind of faith. Make sure your faith is completely in God, okay? And then once you've got the right kind of faith, ask God to increase your faith. Because even though a small amount of the right kind of faith is better than a large amount of the wrong kind, a large amount of the right kind of faith, that's best of all. Let me share an illustration with you. It's not mine. I got it from someone else, but I love this illustration. Thin ice, thick ice. Thin ice and thick ice. Let's say the ice is really thin. This is a great Florida illustration for today, right? But let's say the ice is really thin, okay? I don't care how much faith or confidence you have in that ice. Ice is real thin. If you walk out in it, you're, gonna go, you're going down, right? You're going through the ice. Why? Because you've got little faith. You're trusting in something little. Thin ice. Well, how about if the ice is really thick? One feet, two feet, 12 feet. I don't care how scared you are about going out in that ice. As long as you have just a little bit of faith, like a mustard seed to walk out there, you're going to be just fine. Because it's big faith. You're trusting in something big. Thick ice. So, You ask the question, well, if even just a small amount of faith in God could move mountains, why would I want a big faith in God? How do you want to live your life? Do you want to live your life like this, trusting God like this? Oh, I don't know if God can take care of me. I don't know how this is going to go. That's a small amount of faith in a big God. Or do you want to live your faith like this? God's got me. He's got me covered. The ice is thick. I'm going to have a big faith in a big God. Folks, don't settle for little faith. Thin ice faith. Faith in something little. Faith that is going to fail you. 
Have faith in God. But once you put your faith in God, don't settle for a small amount of faith in God either. Go for big faith with a big God. We all need to grow in our faith in God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this amazing passage. It's It's a paradox at first. We don't understand the difference between little faith and small faith at first. But Lord, I pray that we do now. Little faith is trust in something else. Big faith is trust in you. And Lord, we want to grow in our faith for you are a great God. And we can walk out on that ice knowing that you will hold us up no matter what. We love you. We thank you. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.